I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Welcome back, everybody. It's so great to see you. Hello. Moki missed you, didn't you, Mo? She says yes. (laughs) Yeah, uh, thanks for hanging with us. We we looked at our schedule. We we figured we'd be taking a, a break week somewhere in the holidays. And it just made the most sense to have it be last week. Yeah. So now that's all taken care of, and you'll be hearing from us every other Tuesday, as always. Exactly. Now, darling, you should be very, very happy about this episode. Okay, why? I have no segue. I mean, that was a segue, technically. (laughs) Technically. Sure, fine. Uh, What are we talking about? We're going to talk about the time uh, when Japan was opened up to the West. Uh-huh. We're going to talk about Commodore Perry. We're going to talk about uh, the Tokugawa Shogunate. Cool. We're going to talk about a lot of things. But let's start with one of those uh, one of those buzzwords I already dropped. The Tokugawa period. Okay, tell me about that period. The what period? The Tokugawa. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I yeah. said it correctly. That never <laughs> happens. <laughs> This period of Japan's history lasted from uh, 1603 to 1868. It is named for the Tokugawa shogunate, the ruling dynasty of Japan across this period. Mm-hmm. The, the way medieval Japan worked is that the, the shogun was the military dictator of feudal Japan uh, and had power over the local lords of their various you know, fiefdoms, territories, the uh, daimyos. Okay. This period was also called the Edo period because uh, the Tokugawa clan ruled from Edo, a a coastal town which is now known as Tokyo. Oh. We're going to keep calling it Edo throughout this because that's what they called it then. Yeah. But just know, geographically speaking, we're talking about Tokyo. Edo Harbor is Tokyo Harbor these days, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there was, of course, an emperor in Japan uh, in this period and, and the times before and now. Yeah. Uh, but the emperor was a nominal ruler, ordained by heaven, uh, but essentially a figurehead. The imperial throne was more a seat of religious significance. The shogun held the levers of power. Okay. Th- this period was incredibly isolationist. The shogun's full title translates to commander-in-chief of the expeditionary force against the barbarians. Oh. The the barbarians are everyone that's not Japan. Just FYI. The the Tokugawa foreign policy was called uh, Sokoku, or closed country. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, they weren't actually closed, not entirely. Uh, There was plenty of foreign trade under certain restrictions, like it was mainly just with the the Chinese, uh, and the only Western power was the Dutch East India Company. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there was also trade with uh, the Koreans, the Ainu people, and the Ryukyu Kingdom. Each trading partner was given permission to land and build warehouses in one place, an island accessible to their assigned port. Now, these ports were managed by uh, daimyos, and those daimyos built towns to support the traders, and uh, the merchants, with proper permission, had regular contact with the foreigners. Mm -hmm. Just, Just to say how not exactly closed... Uh, Japan was 
uh, when they they started speaking with Americans, as you'll hear later in this episode, the the Japanese were already perfectly aware of uh, the Mexican War and and what the U.S. had won in it. Uh, the Shogun was a subscriber to the Illustrated London News. So, like, they knew what was going on. Not not as closed as uh, you might think. Now, Japan was closed to colonizing influences, specifically free trade and Christianity. Yeah. Portuguese and Spanish missionaries had tried to spread Catholicism in the 1600s, which prompted a crackdown on overseas influence. Christianity is sort of credited with the Sokoku policy. Mm -hmm. Contact with European missionaries, though, also meant contact with European powers, Christianity may have been feared as a destabilizing influence itself. I mean, if if the emperor has power because he is a descendant of the sun god Amaterasu, then what does it mean if people start believing in a different god? Yeah. Right. But perhaps a bigger worry was that the, the daimyos who were um, in contact with missionaries and the like would be getting support and arms from Western powers with which mm. to challenge Tokugawa rule. Yeah. This came to a head in 1637 when a, a, a revolt, 40,000 Christian peasants strong, rebelled and were put down. Th this is when the restrictions started coming out in decrees and new laws. Yeah. This policy also protected Japan from the opium trade. Oh. Ah, which you might uh, remember from our Holy Kingdom episode. Yeah. Uh, nearby in China. For the next 200 years, colonial powers tried challenging the policy and trying to force trade on their terms. Uh, here's some notable examples. In 1647, Portuguese warships attempted to enter Nagasaki. The Japanese formed a blockade of almost 900 boats to stop the ships. That's a lot of boats. In 1791, two American ships uh, commanded by the American explorer John Kendrick stopped for 11 days on an island south of the Key Peninsula. Uh, Carrick was the first known American to have visited Japan. He planted an American flag there and claimed the islands. Or at least that's what he says. There is no Japanese record of these events ever happening. Oh. What there is a record of is the brig Cyprus, which you'll remember from our uh, uh, Australian convicts episode. Yeah. This was a, a brig that was uh, commandeered by the, the uh, prisoners it carried, and they tried to sail to China, wound up in Japan. Yeah. They did their best. They tried. Uh, you know. In 1837, this American businessman, uh, Charles W. King, saw an opportunity to trade by returning three Japanese sailors to Japan who, who had been shipwrecked a few years before on the Oregon coast. Uh, he, he went to Japan uh, on this American merchant ship that was fired upon and, and forced to sail back. Were the shipwrecked men forced to sail back too? Yeah, they did not get to go home. They didn't get to go home? No. Oh. Uh, in 1846, com uh, Commander James Biddle, uh, a representative of the United States government, was sent to open trade. He anchored in Edo Bay with a pair of ships. Uh, one was a warship with 72 cannons, but they just waited him out. Uh, he eventually <laughs> had to turn around and go home rather than starve. Yeah. And, uh, 
It's a good way to do it. Just like, well, we have food. You only have so much. (laughs) The boat's only so big. Clock's ticking. So that was the last major uh, uh, attempt before Commodore Perry and his expedition. The USA wanted in on the Japanese trade, in major part because they, they were doing a lot of trade with China. It was on the rise after an 1844 treaty, which gave uh, the U.S. the same post-Opium War rights as the British, which is a lot of rights, mm-hmm. a completely unbalanced amount of rights. There was also a lot of uh, American whaling ship activity on Japanese waters, which led to a lot of shipwrecks and, and stranded sailors. Yeah. Uh, and a coaling station in Japan would be really, really convenient for all these steamers traversing the Pacific. Yeah. Coal was actually really, really on uh, uh, people's minds. Secretary of State Daniel Webster said that God had planted coal in the depths of the Japanese islands for the benefit of the human family. What the fuck? Not for the benefit of the Japanese. They clearly weren't using it. Not nearly as much as they had access to. It's just for everybody. Let's go get it. For everybody. Oh, God. After the Mexican War, the, the U.S. stretched for all the way to the Pacific. And so this, this cultural identity of westward expansion, that doesn't stop when you hit the ocean. They got boats. Oh, boy. Uh, This is the time of uh, expeditions to Hawaii and to Guam. Mm -hmm. All all these holdings that uh, we have to this day. This is when uh, the United States was first exploring them. Yeah. In 1851, Secretary uh, Webster gave Commodore Olick a fleet and instructions to sail to Japan and deliver a letter to the emperor requesting friendship and commerce. A letter from President Fillmore. Mm-hmm. Now, Alec sailed out of the East Coast and, and went the long way, right? Uh, uh-huh. Along uh, uh, South America, across the Atlantic, to the Indian Ocean, to Japan. On the way, uh, he apparently got in some trouble with a, a Brazilian diplomat and had a lot of arguments with a captain of one of the sh- ships in his fleet. And he got told to come home. Oh, yeah, he, he got fired, basically, and uh, got off the boat in Hong Kong and, and just came back to the U.S. Okay. So that's why we remember Commodore Matthew Perry uh, undertaking this mission. Yeah. Not the actor from Friends. No. No, he's not. I mean, he looked really good for his age if it was. Uh, but no, this is the younger brother of uh, the, the Commodore Perry of... Battle of Lake Erie fame for all our Michigan and Ohio listeners. Yeah. Anyone else who's been to Put in Bay. Uh, <laughs> we have met the enemy and they are ours. That was the older brother Perry. We're talking about the younger brother Perry today. Yeah. Did they have any other brothers we are eventually going to learn about? It was a big old naval family, it turns out. So maybe. Yeah. Perry's got the job, but half of his fleet is overseas already. He's got time to prepare. So he started reading any books on Japan he could find. He uh, tracked down this guy, uh, Dr. Philip Franz von Siebold, uh, who was a German doctor that had practiced medicine for eight years in uh, Dejima, the, the Dutch trading village near Nagasaki. Uh-huh. The Dejima was a, a man-made island. Uh, oh. Yeah. 
just outside Nagasaki, built for the express purpose of holding all the Dutch people and the Chinese people so that you, you can't cross this river, and without proper permission, Japanese people can't cross the other way. There, this is where the trading happens. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where he lived for eight years. Uh, he introduced Japan to Western medicine, including vaccinations. He had a daughter uh, who herself became the first Japanese woman to practice medicine. Oh. He was even invited to uh, visit the emperor's court in Kyoto. But on the way, uh, they found that he had a map of northern Japan. In his time in Japan, he was a big collector of, you know, arts and crafts and books Souvenirs. and paintings and uh, uh, biological specimens, plants and animals. In fact, there are a lot of plants native to Japan that are named for him. Oh. Because he was the first person to, to describe them with, like, Latin business yeah. to the West. Like, his name is hidden in their scientific name. Oh, okay. Yeah. So not like the names we actually use as regular no, everyday people. No. But yes, one, one thing they found in his collection was a map he was given as a gift. Uh, it's, it's illegal to have maps of Japan. It's illegal for foreigners to have maps of Japan. Oh. He was accused of being a Russian spy and expelled from the country. That was a bad gift to give him. As a, that was a real mistake. Uh, so that's why he was available to talk to uh, Commodore Perry rather than continuing to do his job with the Dutch. Yeah. Part of Perry's uh, uh, preparations were to demand uh, full and discretionary powers as part of his orders from uh, uh, Secretary Webster. That means basically he had the right to choose when and if and how to fire all of the many cannons on his ships. Oh, goodness. Without having to send a boat, you know, back to Washington to run a telegram to come back to tell him what's what. It was take a really long time. Yeah, yeah, it would. Perry also didn't allow any professional diplomats to sail with him. There would be no question who was the guy to talk to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was given a fleet of four steamships and four sailing ships and, and a full company of marines. And he himself sailed out of Virginia in November 1852, sailing east across all the oceans of the world. <laughs> well, not the Arctic, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and, and met up with the entirety of his fleet in Shanghai in May 1853. Cool. Now, his strategy was a classic, perhaps the classic example of gunboat diplomacy. Uh-huh. You, you get what you want through demonstrations of force. Not by exercising force, but by showing, look at all of the force we have. Look at all our guns. Look, just look at them. I'm not going to shoot them, but you're going to look at them. Mm-hmm. No, no direct threats, but there is the implication. Yeah. Yeah. Let me strut by you. In fact, he literally strutted. Uh, on the way to Edo, he landed in the Ryukyu kingdom, uh, you know, a, a sort of vassal-ish state uh, and, and one of Japan's close trading partners, as mentioned, that, you know, didn't have quite as strict rules or nearly quite the, the strength. Uh, so he just landed in their harbor, got the marines out. They, they marched up and down the beach doing their drills, doing their formations. Uh-huh. You know, you gotta get your exercise. They're all cooped up on the ship, after all. 
Just kind of act like a marching band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this fleet in total had hundreds of cannons, of course, most of which were firing some uh, relatively new explosive shells. Oh, dang. Very good, very fun. And he also refused to meet any low-level officials. Uh, He made it very clear that he had a letter from the President of the United States and would not meet with anybody uh, uh, unless they had a sufficiently high rank to deal with matters of state. Uh Uh-huh. No local harbor masters are going to get an audience with Commodore Perry. No, sir. None of you minions. No functionaries. He he would only speak to people with decision-making powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he sailed into Edo Bay with four ships and ordered them to go right past Japanese lines and keep their guns trained on the town at the bay's mouth while he, in his very big hat and medals and epaulets, w- was clear to be seen on the decks surrounded by these big, big guns. He must have been a sight. <laughs> Like, the, just... the Japanese paintings of him? Oh, yeah. yeah. Very good. Very good. Uh, he announced his presence by firing those guns. Blank shots from 73 cannons. Uh, he said it was to celebrate uh, the American Independence Day as he sailed in on July 8th. Uh-huh. I mean, <laughs> close. Very close. Almost made it. But too late. You're not allowed to like do that now. He was four days off of that being a good excuse. He was real close. Then he just snapped. So some Japanese ships sailed up with big signs telling him to go away. The signs were written in French, but, you know, close enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Perry's fleet didn't. They, they did not go away. The, the first move was for both sides to wait it out. Okay. So on the 9th, the next day, a samurai and an interpreter row on out, and they, they deliver in person the order that no foreign ships are allowed to land there. Like, look, this this law was signed uh, 200 years ago. Uh-huh. You're, not, you're not allowed here. Perry never left his cabin. He let his officers tell them that he, he would not speak to them. He, he speaks to the big guys. Mm-hmm. So the day after that, July 10th, another samurai uh, uh, rode on out, but posing as the port's administrator, the, the, the daimyo, and told one of Perry's captains to sail to Nagasaki instead. Nagasaki's all set up for, for dealing with, with you Western folks. Have you met the Dutch? They're lovely. You'll get along. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, the real administrator was sending uh, uh, to the shogun for instructions. Yeah. This whole time, Perry is sending uh, his ships along the coast to just scout around, get a lay of the land, count how many fortresses they have with cannons pointed at the sea, you know, just for fun. Yeah. He also presented the Japanese with a gift. Oh. A white flag, which came with instructions on how to uh, make a, a surrender if, you know, anything goes wrong. Oh, gosh. Just, just so you know. That's a bold move. That is somebody who knows what they're doing. Wow, you are so full of yourself. <laughs> like the the whole strategy is to project like this this monolithic image of like self-assuredness and and power. To say here you're going to need this is <laughs> it's so good. Oh my god. During the landing, the, the shogun wasn't feeling too good. 
he was sick. So the, the shogun's council uh, took it upon themselves to, to debate and make a decision. They decided that just to accept a letter addressed to the emperor wouldn't say anything uh, about, you know, accepting the contents of the letter. They're, they're just saying that, okay, you, you, congratulations, you very important postman. <laughs> you did your job. You can go away now. Uh, so Perry was admitted to land uh, at what is now uh, Yokosuka. Uh, it has since become a, a part of Tokyo on the 14th of July. He landed there with another gun salute, a full band, 250 men marching in formation. Lots of pomp and circumstance. Yes. So the letter was received and delivered to the shogun, and Perry sailed to China promising that he would come back next year to receive his reply. I'm just imagining like all this pomp and circumstance and him literally coming off of the boat and going, here, okay, bye. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 The shogun died 10 days later. <laughs> I said so... he was sick. Like, <laughs> So didn't get to read the letter? He read it. He didn't get to do much about it. So the shogun's council is again left deciding what to do. The common opinion was to stall for time. Mm -hmm. the, the disagreement was for what and for how long. Yeah, like what will we do after we but, stall? But everybody was like, okay, we, we can't give up our, our sovereignty, our independence. We, we can't become like, you saw the opium wars. We can't, we can't do that. Yeah. But um, among a lot of the daimyos, there, there was uh, an amount of confidence. I mean, look at it from a certain point of view. The United States was less than 100 years old. They, they are baby children. Yes. Constantly threatening to tear itself apart. Yep. Uh, Pretty true. Surely the, the ancient and unified Japanese empire could match its military technology if they had enough of a head start to prepare. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, almost immediately after uh, uh, Perry left, a Russian admiral sailed into Edo Harbor with four warships of his own. Oh. Waiting the Russians out did work. They had the extra bonus of the excuse of, the Shogun just died. Yeah. We can't deal with this right now. There is no one currently able to, to talk about treaties. Yeah. You should go away. Yeah. We need some time to yeah. mourn. Uh, but but while they were able to to turn away that fleet, it, it was a pretty big wake up call that you know there there was metaphorical blood in the water. No one is going to give them time to build a navy to defend themselves. No. Uh, but they they tried anyway. Uh, the, the shogun's council rescinded a two hundred year old rule against the building of large ships and began to make whatever navy they could on short notice. Did, was there a ban on large ships because of, like, we don't want no Western influence, so we're not going to have big ships, so we go there? Or No big ships because the daimyos that have them could use them to challenge the Tokugawa oh, okay. yeah. clan. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The, the, the two I mean, it just big... seems like they could have their own big ship. They could, yeah. Everyone else, no big ship. We get big ships. We have them already. <laughs> like, you know. Right, right. Like, the, the, the reason the, the Tokugawa shogunate lasted so long, I mean, they, they took power after the Warring States period, which is what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of different uh, clans, a lot of daimyos in a near constant state of war. So, like, the, the 
prevailing um, philosophy was was one of maintaining harmony, everything in its proper place, and the the strategy was nothing that can challenge Tokugawa power. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Defenses and fortifications started going up along the coast, especially around Edo Harbor, uh, but all the harbors and landing places they they tried to get. Uh, as much as they could built to to send away any attacking fleets. Yeah. And so with that, we're, we're going to take a quick break and see how well that worked. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. So Commodore Perry... He's chilling out in China, uh-huh. kicking it, letting Japan, you know, mull it over, make some decisions, mm-hmm. have a good think. Yeah. And so in February 1954, he returned with 10 ships and 1,600 men. Oh, boy. The sequel. Everything's bigger. Everything's is louder. Yeah. Yeah. It was time to make the treaty he had set out for in the first place. Okay. But the the big negotiation was arranging where to do the treatying. Yeah. He naturally wanted to land in Edo. I mean, you're going to make an arrangement between nations. You do it in the capital. Yeah. It just makes sense. Yeah, I suppose. The Japanese wanted him to go anywhere else. Anywhere. Anywhere, anywhere at all. Their Their whole desire is to limit... The destabilizing influence of foreigners in the country. Mm-hmm. If you roll out the red carpet to the the shogun's house, yeah, that's not limiting. Inf- that's all of the influence. That's, They're there. That's inviting everyone else. They're they're walking right in. This got uh, uh, really tense, including Perry threatening to to just burn down the whole city if he couldn't come in, and that he'd bring in a hundred warships by the end of the month. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Navy had uh, a lot less than that at the time, but, you know, a a little poetic license never hurt anybody. They don't know. Except certain poets. Uh, In the end, the the meeting was set for Kanagawa, 45 miles away. The Japanese built a special-built treaty house there, which is now the site of a uh, a historical museum dedicated to to this period, to the uh, full opening of Japan to the West. Mm Mm-hmm. Although the, the shogunate had agreed in advance to concede basically every point. Yeah. Armed swordsmen were stationed under the floorboards of the treaty house. Yes. Ready to pop in in case something went wrong. Yes. Nothing went wrong, as far as we know. Dang it. In fact, there are no... Step, step. There are no written records, really, of the, the final negotiations in the treaty house. Everything was apparently very boring. I like to think it was very exciting. They just all decide not to talk about it. <laughs> so th- this produced the Convention of Kanagawa, or Japan's and U.S.'s Treaty of Peace and Amity. Uh, it included 12 articles, in- including uh, a lasting peace between the two countries forever. Uh-huh. I- it didn't really work out that way. Nope. Uh, but in, in more concrete uh, terms... Uh, the, the ports of Shimoda and Hakodate would be opened to U.S. ships, mm-hmm. not Nagasaki, where, you know, uh-huh. the Westerners already were. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the proper treatment of shipwrecked Americans in Japan 
uh, rights of U.S. ships to be provisioned, which would be handled by a Japanese government monopoly, these coaling stations, Mm -hmm. provisions for a U.S. consulate at Shimoda, and groundwork for a trade deal, you know, stuff about currency exchanges and stuff like that, but no actual trade deal. Yeah. So this treaty was signed and sent off for ratification and and gifts were exchanged. Uh, Perry brought a lot of presents that didn't quite have the the backhanded significance of his earlier gift. Yeah. Like a a miniature steam train that the Japanese apparently loved. They loved the little steam train. It was adorable. I mean, everyone loves a miniature steam train. Uh, I mean, there there are lots of books and and American-made clocks and all sorts of, of manufactured goods showing like, look, look at what we have. Look at what we can do. Mm-hmm. And in exchange, there were a lot of uh, Japanese art and crafts and, and other things like, oh, here you go. And they even found out that uh, Perry had, he was a seashell collector. Oh. He'll, as, as a man of the sea, I suppose that makes sense. And they're like, here, here's a box of shells you can only get here with our weirdo animals. Yeah. Yeah. He's, oh, yeah. Dope. Cool. <laughs> seashell collection. Uh, Perry sailed back home to the U.S. He was given a, a cash bonus of $20,000 from Congress. That's a lot. That has uh, about the buying power of around $560,000 today. Oh, God. Uh, and he immediately retired and started writing a book a three-volume memoir about this expedition and his time in in Japan. Of course he would. Which also made him a a bit of a penny. Perry just seems very uh, proud of himself. No one else did what he did, and people tried for 200 years. Yeah, but I'm going to think that there's probably five chapters just on him walking off that boat in that hat. (laughs) It was a very good hat. (laughs) So, hey, four ships... And a stubborn streak just sailed into Edo Harbor and got away with almost everything they asked for and the groundwork for a trade deal. Everyone else is like, hey, let's do that too. Everybody else is like, hey, let's do that too. In fact, while Perry was was, uh, giving them time to think and hanging out in China, uh, he found out that the British and French were planning to sail with him on the return trip. Oh. Just to make sure the U.S. wasn't getting anything, you know, preferential. Uh-huh. And did they? That's part of why he sailed back in February, rather than giving them, you ah, know. Ah, check them. They only had seven months to think. Yeah. <laughs> but five treaties were signed with foreign powers uh, through the summer and fall of 1858. These are known collectively as the ANSEI treaties. The, the diplomat that signed... The earlier treaty that Perry negotiated, he asked the emperor's advice on what to do about these treaties coming in, while the the council and the daimyos and the new shogun were still divided uh, on what to do. It was the first time an emperor had been asked how to govern Japan since the Tokugawa shogunate began in 1603. (laughs) This was breaking new ground. Yeah. So the first of these ANSEI treaties was with the United States, the Treaty of Amity and Commerce, also known as the Harris Treaty, because it was negotiated by a Mr. Harris. Mm -hmm. It was the trade deal the U.S. wanted from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It opened four more ports to the U.S. for a total of six, now including uh, Nagasaki, just because why not? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, U.S. citizens could own land and put up buildings in the treaty ports and, and live there indefinitely without needing any permission. Oh. Uh, and also it provided for extraterritoriality, a wonderful little bit of treaty law. Are you familiar with extraterritoriality, dear? Uh, no. Okay. Well, I mean, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It It is the provision that uh, uh, people who it covers, in this case, U.S. citizens, would be governed by the laws of the U.S. as uh, dictated by the U.S. consulate in Japan, rather than the laws of Japan. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this was a major point that, that Harris was trying to argue, like, look, you've got all these rules, all, all this culture and tradition, and you know what? That's great. But y'all were born here. Our people don't know these things. They, they can't be expected to, to follow them. And also, look at all of my guns. There's so many. Oh, God. He, he had a lot of boats of his own. Now, the, the other four treaties, the, they had the same benefits, essentially, given to the Netherlands, Russia, Britain, and France in that order over the next few months. Japan negotiated some of these treaties to get, try to get points in their favor, trying to put themselves in a position to eventually rebuild and resist. Like, uh, their, their treaty with the Netherlands included getting uh, uh, warships and naval training from the Dutch. But no amount of boats at this point is going to be a match for the effect of open trade. Yeah. Like, you just allowed all these people to come and start living there. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard to kick them out. Yeah. I mean, they, they've got the head start on, on the big, giant navies. And also, they can devalue your currency. Yeah. Uh, the, the shogunate was even more fractured and unprepared uh, these few years later because of uh, I mean, there was a major earthquake, which caused a large tsunami. There was a cholera outbreak in between. The new shogun uh, died shortly after signing the Harris Treaty. They need to get younger shoguns. They. This was a very young shogun. Oh, dang. Did he get cholera? He did get cholera. Dang. It is, it is believed he got cholera. That, that is a likely cause of death. Now, the, the, the shogunate's prevailing attitude was that accepting these terms was a lot better than provoking war. Mm-hmm. And that Japan had a better chance at biding its time, uh, building up a positive relationship, and then using that footing to, to get better terms later. Just just wait another five years. Hey, we're, we're going to get access to, to these uh, uh, Westerners' uh, uh, universities military academies 20 years from now we're gonna get really good treaties mm-hmm. just hold on so they don't blow us up with all their big guns very big guns now not everybody agreed with this like i said the the uh daimyos were were yelling at each other uh the the shogun's council which had a lot of power in this time of of sickly short-lived literally short-lived shoguns, uh, they were not agreeing a lot. In fact, um, the head of the council was constantly like sending letters to all the daimyos and polling them for their opinions, which to the public says, we don't know what we're doing. Oh no, everything's falling apart. 
and, and so in order to keep people on the same page, there was the ANSAY purge, which took over a hundred ranking members who, who disagreed with this general policy out of power. Oh. Now, when we say purge, only two of them were given the death penalty. Oh. But there, there were a handful placed on indefinite house arrest for life. Oh. And a bit more than that put on uh, shorter terms of house arrest. But most of the hundred were just fired. They, okay. They just lost their positions. Yeah. Yeah. All this rapid change had a, a powerful effect on the nation and on its people. Uh, the, the Japanese people on the street living in and near these ports, not a big fan of all these Westerners who had, again, no, no respect for Japanese culture and, you know, a, a very traditional way of life and also weren't bound by their laws. Yeah, you know, it's probably really annoying to see someone do something that's like If I did wrong. that, I would be fined, but you're fine. Yeah. You're fine. I'm fined. Where, where's the justice here? Mm-hmm. Uh, unemployment and inflation rose sharply once the effects of these unbounded trade uh, started taking hold. The Japanese currency was devalued, and there's this massive outflow of gold. You see, uh, if you traded things in the right order, you could just change gold for money for different money for a different amount of gold, and you're just you're you're just swapping things around. You're not getting anything to anybody that's helpful, and you're certainly not making anything except a big profit for yourself. Yeah. And the loser in this is the Japanese economy. Huge profits for just sailing in a circle, essentially. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mentioned that cholera, which may have killed the uh the most recent shogun we've mentioned. Mm-hmm. That came from the Westerners. Yeah, yeah. So foreigners and the Japanese people who worked with them started turning up dead. Oh. Yeah. Uh, uh, samurai were meant to defend Japan from invaders. And instead, they're being, you know, pressed into service, stamping the paperwork that allows them to live here with impunity and bring cholera and unemployment and misery. Uh, and some took it on themselves to, you know, fix the situation. Vigilantes. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, anyone who signed the ANSAY treaties on either side uh, uh, of the bargaining table was a target. Oh. Uh, samurai attacked the British delegation and killed two of their members. Uh, the, the U.S. delegation building in Edo was burned down once. Mm-hmm. Like there, there was samurai-led mob violence. For a while, there was a rate of about one dead foreigner per month. Uh-huh. In 1863, as these tensions rose and mounted, the emperor decreed an order to expel all barbarians. Mm-hmm. Now, again, to reiterate, the emperor isn't supposed to decree anything Ooh. in the Tokugawa system. They, they are there to be a, a living embodiment of, of God. Yeah. They are, are there to be ahead of the religion. They, they are there to... to uh, sit in Kyoto and, and be serene and ceremonially bestow power upon the shogun. Yeah. No, we're, we're doing decrees now, okay? The, the, I'm the freaking empire. Uh, empire. Emperor. I'm the freaking emperor. Exactly. So now everybody has to make a choice. Do you listen to the shogun or do you listen to the emperor? Who's God? Basically, yeah. Direct descendant of the sun god. Yeah. Yeah. Until uh, General MacArthur, but that's for another episode. (laughs) 
So uh, Ronin, primarily, the, these are uh, samurai that are, are uh, not bound to a daimyo. Mm-hmm. They enforced this decree, uh, which Westerners saw as an act of war. Going back on all these treaties, these very nice treaties that we, we met each other. You rode our tiny train. You can't, you can't do this. You can't back out because of the tiny train. You love the tiny train. So anytime a ship was denied entry into a port, uh, some warships showed up to break blockades. Every trader or diplomat or, or just citizen that was harassed or killed was met with a, a big old punitive fine charged to the shogunate. <laughs> Meanwhile, the people are, are having revolts in the streets, uh, armed insurrections against the shogunate, chanting slogans about, you know, exte- uh, expel the barbarian, support the emperor. Uh, and they were put down bloodily. Uh, one of these protest movements was also a, uh, a religious sort of ecstasy in a weird way. P- people would find amulets that had apparently fallen from heaven, and basically a giant street party would break out. Uh-huh. Just like dozens, hundreds of people that would disrupt any sort of traffic or commerce or anything, but they, they would dance and sing, and often they they would just strip and there, there would be public displays of, of lewdness and sexuality. Oh, my. Chanting things that uh, are translated as, like, who cares or who says we can't or, or that sort of thing. Uh-huh. These were all set off by, you know, blessings from heaven. But there's uh, uh, there are recorded instances or at least recorded accusations of politically active priests uh, planting some amulets to be found in order oh. to start this sort of thing happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love that as a, a religious slash political chant. Who says we can't? Who says we can't? <laughs> it's a topsy-turvy world out there. But again, with, with these uh, bloody reprisals, the, the daimyos loyal to the shogunate uh, cracking down, the Tokugawa reestablished control. It was clear they were in charge. It was equally clear that they were no match for the foreign powers. Mm-hmm. So as as time went on and and things just broke down more and more, uh, as they tried to implement a, a plan of modernization, of selective westernization, the shogunate was dissolved. Mm-hmm. And power was moved entirely into the hands of a new emperor, the teenage emperor Meiji. And what is called the Meiji Restoration, power restored to Emperor Meiji. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that marked the beginning of Imperial Japan, rapid modernization. And that is another episode. That it is. So, darling, what have you learned? All this. All of it. All of it. You learned the whole thing. The whole thing. Okay, so you tell me, and then I'll know how good I was. Oh, I'm not going to tell you a full hour worth of stuff back. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't really know much about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely did not know about Perry and his big hat. It was so impressive. Just feathers, feathers for days. I'm just imagining like the, the four foot long like peacock feathers, <laughs> like woofing out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like one of those like oversized carnival pimp hats. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of, of costumes, like if you look at the 
official portrait of, of every shogun. There's this stark dividing line with the, the first one after Perry's arrival. Really? Because everyone before that is drawn in a very traditional Japanese style. Uh-huh. Everyone after that, like there, it's 1800s European style portraiture. Yeah. But but with all the, the Japanese signifiers. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Immediately on a dime. That's crazy. I mean, also speaking of art, uh, we've connected this to a few episodes already. You, you want one more? All of this trade with Japan, all the, the exports of uh, Japanese woodblock prints, big influence on Degas. Oh, yeah. 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 A- and Manet and other artists of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. It was, it was it was very interesting. I, I I can't say more about what I specifically learned because I just didn't know much about this. Mm-hmm. It's an mm-hmm. area of history I don't really know about. I, it, it is interesting between this and much more recently the uh, American occupation of post-war Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the our, our two countries have such a closely intertwined history. Yeah, I mean more than Japan and any other Western power, but. I'd say more than the U.S. and anyone but the United Kingdom, honestly. Yeah. Maybe Mexico. Yeah. If you're worried to to, to assuage a little bit of of American colonial guilt, all those uh, uh, repressive crackdowns in the 1860s, the U.S. was not particularly a part of that because we were busy with our own stuff in the 1860s. Yeah, we got distracted. If if you'll remember... Not that we wouldn't have, we couldn't have, and that's sort of good. Probably. I, it's it's not nothing. It's not good, but it's not nothing. Yeah. I, I, I take it the American focus on international things probably diminished a lot in the 1860s. Yeah. Yeah. Not not a lot of- uh, Things probably like just overseas suddenly- Overseas travel. Suddenly dropped. Mm-hmm. Lots of pulling out of things or like, we'll get back to this later. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break now and be right back with some letters. Okay. Hello, friends. We're back with some letters. Yes, we are. What's okay. our first letter, dear? You're very happy right now. And I love happy. letters and friends. <laughs> well, we got a letter from Lord Smaff, which included some dog pictures. Thank you. I also love dogs. Lord Smaff also uh, took some time to talk about the Spruce Goose, mm-hmm. which I was like, what's that last time? <laughs> uh, and Howard Hughes. Talk about the Martin Scorsese movie, The Aviator, which is about Howard Hughes. Yes. Uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes. I never saw it. Try, trying for that Oscar. Really swinging for the fences. <laughs> the The film covers his life from the early days as a movie director, when he made one of the most costly and dangerous movies of the time, to him crashing his experimental prototype plane into Beverly Hills, to locking himself in a movie theater for four months, to building the Spoose Goose. Yeah. I like the scene where he has jars filled of his own urine. I have not seen that movie. <laughs> and right now I'm glad I haven't. Uh, Lord Smith uh, goes on to say that they find uh, Hughes to be a fascinating person um, and is very interested in Howard Hughes' um, struggles with OCD as well. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't say it's their favorite 
movie based on a real historical person, but it's interesting. Yeah. So thank you for sharing. And thank you for sharing your dog. Yes. Joe wrote in to answer the prompt for this episode because I wanted to hear people's favorite treaties. Yeah, that's why we only got three letters. <laughs> One per week. And theirs was the Treaty of Versailles, which ended the First World War. I mean, sure, it put all the blame for uh, all the, the deaths and uh, all the... the destruction onto one country who, uh, even if they paid their entire GDP each year since 1919, would only have paid it all back uh, eight years ago, nearly a century uh, uh, of payments. Yeah. But, you know, other than that, pretty good treaty and all. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like it caused a second world war or anything. Nope. It was merely a major contributor. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Final Gamer wrote in and also does not have a favorite treaty to share. I mean, neither do I. I was just curious, <laughs> yeah. frankly. But did want to share some notes about the Discovery from our previous episode. Uh, the, which, the ship named the Discovery. Yes. Yes. yes uh, from our Spookums episode. And apparently the Discovery is docked safely in Final Gamer's home city. <laughs> uh, they've been on it four times, and it's really cool. Uh, it is actually the last traditional wooden three-mast ship uh, to be built in Britain. Uh, there's a shopping mall in the city where the Discovery emblems are put on the ceiling, and there's uh, sculptures of penguins dotted throughout the city to commemorate the voyage. Aw, cute! Uh, and the Discovery actually continued to be in service after our story mm -hmm. uh, as a cargo vessel during World War I uh, and then becoming a research vessel in 1923 to research whale populations in the Southern Ocean. Mm -hmm. And it continued to evolve and be used for uh, quite a while, yeah. uh, including having like a dark room for photos and a library and bio labs and stuff. That's pretty cool. Uh and then the Discovery was also used as a training vessel for the Boy Scouts in London for their Sea Scouts in the 1930s. And it was also used as a floating base for the River Emergency Services during World War II. And now it's, you know, where it sits and it's a museum and you can go visit it, which is pretty neat. It sounds like a good museum. There, there's lots of things about that ship to museum. Yeah. 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 Well, that's pretty cool. I uh, feel like I missed... Some important information here, because I had no idea that it still existed. <laughs> so thank you for sharing and letting everyone else know that they should put it on their travel plans, mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. in the area. Thanks, Final Gamer, and thanks to everybody who wrote in. If you, listening to this, yes, you, would like to send us an email, where can those go, dear? Those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. That's where we want to hear your show suggestions, your questions, your corrections, uh, any stories you might want to tell, including... Our, our responses to our regular prompts. Darlin, what would you like to hear about for our next episode? <laughs> so, I'd like you to share one of the things that shocked you most to learn that your government did. <laughs> wow. I don't want to say your favorite because that's... I'm, I'm going for a negative connotation here. Sure, sure. Tell me the, the bad thing that you were shocked to learn, not the like, oh, that's nice. We could make our entire 2019 uh, uh, out of responses to that prompt, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, 
Those will be some fun emails to read. And again, those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning into this show and encourage you to listen to our other Sex Archie. We are at that special time now where uh, there are five episodes to catch up on, mm-hmm. which means as soon as another episode of Riverdale airs, the, the first will no longer be available for streaming in the U.S. Yeah. So we're all that's left for yeah. you. <laughs> We're all you got. And uh, I will say the last two episodes. They're so good. Goodness gracious. And the last three things we put up, because I really do like the the uh, solo bonus episode I did. Yeah. I'm very proud of myself for that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, you can find Sex Archie on iTunes or and wherever else you found this show you're listening to yeah. right here. Uh, you can also uh, leave us a rating and review or tell your friends the holidays are coming up. You're going to be seeing friends and family. You're going to have so much driving to do and so much football. Oh, goodness. All the football. Why not try to bring some other entertainment? No one will notice the little wireless earbuds when you're doing something other than football. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get to laugh out loud and then have to explain to grandma about commodore perry's giant feather hat and she'll be like yeah i met that guy your grandma is incredibly old in this story yes congratulations grandma you made it yeah your your grandma would be 170 (laughs) looks good for her age (laughs) but yes we we do appreciate all you do to to help us grow and flourish uh both with ratings and reviews and of course that all-powerful word of mouth we do not advertise the show we leave that to passionate folks such as yourselves yeah so do your job (laughs) (laughs) what and while we go uh sign up for etiquette lessons (laughs) i'm grant i'm elena and history's better with with your your honey. honey